had shared that it would have been fractured kneecap spray. <laughs> and, there was a, and I knew that Stephanie had shared the story with me, and I wanted to be sure we got it right. Um, today we are starting a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know how familiar you are with the book. Uh, it's one of the, the books that I have never done a preaching series on. I have taught it. It's an absolutely fascinating book. And uh, it's got some very awkward things to deal with. Because uh, there's, uh, we're talking about a person who uh, has... Uh, Stumbled, if we will, and and has lost uh, some of his confidence in his walk with God, and he's reporting and reflecting on that. And I think this is an interesting thing for all of us to go through and to read and to share with, and maybe it'll give us a, a sense of of uh, uh, a gentle spirit towards those that uh, that have difficulties at times. And the other side of it is to see. Uh, how God deals through these things. So, uh, we, the, the other elders, some of them will be preaching as well through this. And I wanted to share with you, we are going, we are using a book called Living Life Backward. And it is, uh, and you'll see why the title in just a few minutes. Uh, but, uh, what I would like to, to let you know is that it's available uh, through uh, Christian book distributors. It's available through Amazon. If you have Kindle, it's available for Kindle. Uh, if you uh, are like me and you have to market everything up and, and, and all that type of stuff, it's available in book form all well, as well uh, on uh, Amazon Prime. So uh, if you're wanting to get the book and, and uh, read along with us, uh, feel free to do so. And uh, so... Again, the title of the book is Living Life Backward. The author is David Gibson. David Gibson. So, again, today we're starting that. And so, uh, I'd like to ask you to join me in uh, reading uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, the first 11 verses. The words of the preacher, the son of of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is filled with uh, is not <clears throat> nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will what will what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun Is there a thing of which it is said see this is new 
It has been already in the ages. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things. Yet to be among those who come after. It is. You 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 look at this and you and you think where's the, where's the joy in this, and. Uh, Quite candidly, there's not much joy in this section at all. But you will see as we go through this, what's running through the mind of the author. And we might as well get to that. The author is, if you have a a Bible introduction in in your Bible, it will probably tell you that the author traditionally is seen as Solomon. Uh, He wrote... uh, many of the Proverbs as well as Ecclesiastes. And... and, uh, uh, he's uh, he's at a point in his life when he writes this. Uh, most believe he wrote it uh, right in the 10th century B.C. towards the end of his life. You've got to understand what he's been through. And this isn't to make a defense for him, but only to understand where he's coming from. We all know that when Solomon became king, what what was the one thing he when God says, "What do you want?" You know, and he prayed for. What was the one thing he asked for? Wisdom. And God gave him great wisdom. As a result of his wisdom, God also blessed him in almost every other way you can imagine. He blessed him with great wealth. He blessed him with a sense of being able, again, through the wisdom that God gave him, but also just God working ahead of him, was able to to work out a situation where he was at peace with most of his neighbors. Uh, And in fact, so much so that they were paying tribute to him. And we're talking about amazing amounts of wealth and tribute coming to him. And so you, you look at all of this going on, and, and in order to establish some of the peace between some of the nations, he started doing something that he shouldn't have done. And that was to make what you would call political marriages. And so he was marrying various women uh, in order to establish a relationship with that country. And, and so they would become uh, his wives, plural. And we're talking about a substantial number of wives. And one of the things that came with these wives was their worship, because most of them were Gentile pagans, and uh, they brought their. And he allowed them to establish. In fact, in some cases, it's implied that he helped them establish their little temples and their altars and different things, so that they could worship freely their gods. Well, you can see where this is going. He he's stepping outside of of what God has called him to do to keep his country pure, to keep himself pure, to keep his home pure. Uh, and, and so the end result is the next thing you find is that he is worshiping with them. And he's just constantly slipping down. And about the, the time that he's probably in the depths of, of some of this, uh, and he's, he's looking around and saying, there's, there's nothing good happening anywhere. I've got all of this wealth and it doesn't mean anything. 
And so let's we'll look a little bit closer. So we have the words of the preacher. Uh, the word preacher here is Ecclesiastes. Uh, it actually is the word for preacher, and, and it means one who is explaining, telling, or teaching. And so uh, we have the words of the teacher, if you wanted to put it that way, uh, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. It fits perfect for Solomon. Somebody says, well, you know, the son of David could be any of his relatives. Uh, Jesus is considered a son of David. Uh, Joseph was a son of David. Uh, and so in the context of heritage, but at this point he is king in Jerusalem and the timing and the writing of this showing up and all of these things puts it pretty much in Solomon's lap. And so, uh, you might read a commentary, you might read a, an article, you might read something online that says that you know there's great arguments. There are always people who are looking for a way to make themselves famous, and, and even in Christian writing. And if they could figure out a way to look at this and say, ah, look right here, you know, and you know that that was you know. So don't. I'm going to stick with the tradition with this one for sure, and that is that I believe Solomon is the writer. Um, he's towards the end of his reign. Again, he's a man of great wealth. Uh, he's at peace with his neighbors. Uh, he's a man of great wisdom. Uh, success, like I said, in every way. Building the temple for God, the, the house of God. Remember, David, he gathered all the information, all the things together, but God wouldn't let him build the temple. He says, your hands are, are, are bloody. You know, you, you, you're a man of, of, of blood. You can't, you can't build the temple. And Solomon built the, the temple and it, it was absolutely gorgeous, amazing work of architecture and, 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 and it was just uh, an amazing thing. He built uh, all sorts of other buildings. Uh, he built bridges. He built, he established beautiful, huge gardens. He had so many different things he did to, to, with his gifts and his talent and his wealth. And, uh, and so, so much so that people, dignitaries and rulers from other countries would come to visit just to see what he had done. I'm, I'm sure you know the Queen of Sheba traveled 1,500 miles to come and, and hear him uh, teach, if you will, to speak and, and to see the wonders that he had done. And so, uh, this is, is this man, yet over time, again because of the situations that he created through his own doing, he began uh, to, I, I put it this way, he began to own his success. Rather than give the glory to God, he began to own the success, meaning, I did this. And along with that, breaking down into worldly relationships, further and further away from being right with God. And the end result was he was in a, a, a serious, deep depression, if you will, uh, spiritually. And, and this is where we find him. Uh, when we get to chapter, verse 2, uh, it says, "...they're vanities of vanities," says the, the, the preacher. "...vanity of vanities, all is vanity." Uh, when you hear the word vanity, uh, what comes to your mind? Self or pride? Okay, and, and there's no doubt that, that Solomon had a tremendous amount of self-pride at this point. But the word vanity, how many, some of you may have a footnote. 
uh, a little number there, and you check down and you look at the footnote, and you'll see uh, that the, the, the word is... Uh, <laughs> I, I lost my place in my notes. Here we go. Uh, vapor. Now, that's one of the, the words. This word actually means vapor. It's used in, in the Old Testament for the word vapor. It's used for the word breath. It's used for the word of puff of wind or a wisp of smoke. And so this word normally that we would think vanity, some of the, the translations go to meaningless. And, and uh, I, 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 that's closer, but, but the idea is, is really to grasp a hold of this idea of vapor or breath or puff of wind, a wisp of smoke. And I, I'm just going to give you two instances where it was used that way. Uh, one is in Psalm 144, and uh, it's in verses 3 and 4. It says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? And this idea of uh, man is like a breath. Same word in, in the Hebrew. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Okay, man is like a breath. A, a, a passing shadow. Keep these, these adjectives in your mind as we go through this because they're, they're really important. Um, another one would be uh, Psalm 39. Um, looking at verses 5 and, and 6, it says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and the lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Uh, down to verse 11. When you discipline a man with uh, rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Again, those same words being used there. Um, What he's talking about here, he's going to to use the rest, well, actually, the the rest of the book <laughs> to explain what he he's saying in this verse, um, and he's going to, to to start with the idea that life is sh- short. Uh, let's look at this: uh, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and the blame and the hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, uh, but it, the sea is not full. The place where the streams flow, they are flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Nor the ear filled with hear, uh, nor the ear filled with hearing, and he's just going on. And, and the idea is that everything runs its course, but every generation comes and then it's gone. The earth stays the same, but the generation comes and then the generation's gone. Uh, life is short, and in the, the the book that we're using here, uh, again, living life backwards. I just share a, a little bit of this. Some of this is going to be like a book, an oral book report for you too. Um, 
the, the author writes, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind, where one minute, uh, here one minute and carried away forever the next. Again, you've heard the word whisper and shadow and, and, and that idea of, of a breath. How long is a breath there? <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's so quick. It happens so fast. Okay, and so this idea of man's life is short. And that's what he's getting at. Solomon lived a long life. Numbers of, of people in, in, in his generation lived much shorter lives than he. So, you know, you could have said, he could have said, well, I've had a long life. I look at myself and I say, you know, I'm, I made 70 years and, and, and so uh, the Bible says, you know, three score and ten and is, 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 is a good age for a man to live. And everything else is, is on top of that is really a blessing. And, and so, uh, and by the way, gray hair is a crown of glory. Um, and, and so, uh, you, you look at that and, and you, you could say, I've had a long life. I look at my grandfather who lived to be 94. He had a long life. I look at my great uncle who lived to be 104. He had a long life. Okay? But compared to the earth and all that goes on around it, it's but a flash, but a moment. And that's what, what is trying to be established here. Life is, is short. Also, is that life is elusive. Uh, I, I don't know how to, to explain this other than to say it's, it, it slips out of our grasp. Um, one person used an illustration of, 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 of candles on a birthday cake. Okay? And when you blow out the candles, the smoke that the, the, the and remember the, the, the term here can be a wisp of smoke. The smoke that's around those candles is briefly there and then it's what? Gone. It just dissipates within the air. Okay? Now, it's also elusive to this point that go ahead and try to grab some. That's what this, this is being drawn to. This idea of go ahead and try to catch a wisp of smoke. It's, it, 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 man's life is brief and it's, and it's elusive. It's hard to get a hold of. And then the question that he comes up with in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And this idea of toil is more than just work. All the things I do to be right with God, all the things I do for my family, to, be, to raise a family, to have my children, all of the things. It's toil. The idea of toil here is all the work I do. Not that I, it's work that I begrudge. And, you know, the idea of toil, when I think of toil, I think, oh, it's work, uh, drudgery. You know, he's not, that's not what's being dealt with here. What's being dealt with is just all the stuff I do. What's its value? When it comes down to the end, if my life is so short and it's so hard to grab a hold of in the sense of value, and, and, I, and I do all of this work, and in a moment, it's what? Gone. I, 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 I have my kids. I raise them, but I'll never see them 
do this or do that because I, I, if my life is, is shorter, I won't, I won't see this happen. Or I won't see my grandchildren. Or I won't see my great-grandchildren. You know, it, the idea is, is with all the toil, all the, uh, the work that I've put into this. And so he says, basically he's saying, what's the point? You know, and all the toils under the sun is important. The word under the sun, that phrase is important. We live on this earth under the sun. So he's talking about all the things that we do on this earth. We're not talking about heaven. We're not talking about spiritual in that context. What we're talking about basically is just the day-to-day life. All the things I do. How important are they? What's the value? If all I'm going to do is to live a short life and be gone. Generation goes and a generation comes, he says. Again, we read that. But the earth remains forever. And then he talks about the sun rising and the sun setting. And, and, and you think about it. He's saying everything runs its course and it happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It wants to get this idea that there's a set of things that go on that just keep repeating. Day after day after day after day. What he's establishing is, is that, that, that life is kind of just a series of routines that you, you just do. You know, you get up, you go to work, you go, you know, you eat, you go to, you know, you be with your family, you go to bed, you get up, you go to work, you, you know, all these cycles that you get caught up in. And, and so this idea of, of, of the sun rises, the sun goes down, uh, and then it hastens to the place where it rises again, you know. Uh, people say, well, that's not very scientific. He wasn't trying to be scientific. He's writing wisdom literature, which is poetic. Somebody, some other people say, well, they didn't know about sunrise and sunset and the rotation of the earth. I'm not going to be so sure to say that. There's things that we're finding out now about what they knew. You know, Job talks about the curvature of the earth. You know, there's, there's things in the Bible that you, we miss a lot of the time and we don't see. So, understand he's writing in, 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 a, in a poetic format. And uh, and then he says the wind blows to the south and to the you know and to the north and around and around it goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. By the way, he's talking about the patterns that wind run. He shouldn't have known that either if he doesn't know about the sun. Uh, so you know it's just how you look at it. The streams run to the sea and the and the, and the sea doesn't get full. What happens? He doesn't say it in a, in a literal form, but it, basically it's implied, you know, uh, that there's evaporation. It goes back to the beginning where the where the the sea from the sea where the the beginning of the stream is, and it does it again. Everything has a cycle. Everything is predictable. It's going to do it over and over and over again. Isn't there anything different? Isn't there anything new that we can talk about? Over and over again. All things are just full of weariness. In other words, boring. A man cannot utter it. And then he goes in here and he says, 
And the eye is not satisfied, satisfied with seeing. What he's talking about there is, is we're never content. We see and we're never satisfied with just what we see. What we have, we always go beyond that and what? Want more. And I'm never content with just what I hear. My ear never fills. My brain never fills up completely. It's always wanting to hear more. I'm always wanting to see more. I'm always wanting to have more. I've talked to, over the years in my life, I've talked, had opportunity to visit and talk with very wealthy people. And, and, and some of those questions that people talk about asking is, when do you have enough? And the majority of them that I've talked with say there is no such thing. Because you're always building a cushion to the cushion to the cushion of, of what you have to protect it. You know, I look at it and, 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 and I don't know how many of you have a savings account of, of any kind to be a cushion so that you can get by, whether it's one month or two or a year, depending on, on how diligent you've been to save. And, 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 you know, that's your cushion. Well, the wealthier you get, the bigger the cushion you need to continue the lifestyle that you have enjoyed. And you get to the point where you want to protect your cushion. And your cushion's cushion. <laughs> you know, so you never have enough. I had a very good friend, uh, and I know Glenn wouldn't mind me mentioning his name, so I won't say George. Glenn. And uh, I, I worked with him where I had apprenticed in a wood shop. And uh, he was uh, a uh, marketing engineer at Cal Poly, uh, in, in, in the courses at Cal Poly, he was getting his degree there. And uh, he ended up leaving the shop uh, and, and going to work for one of the first circuit board companies. And they had started up at San Luis Obispo. And his, he was in a management position. And he's watching the, the people having to take the circuit board wrap it with this bubble wrap stuff, and then put it in a box very carefully, wrap another one, put it in the box very carefully, and then try to close the lid and, and, and not bend. And you see that all the wires were far more exposed than they are nowadays. And you could bend one, bend, break one, something like that. Everything had to be done so carefully. And it took a lengthy period of time to, to get a box full and ready to ship. And he watched that and he went home and played with his kids' vacuum form and figured out a way to have slotted boxes. Uh, and he got a guy in Santa, in, in Santa Cruz to come up with the system and, that, and he did it with Santa guy in Santa Cruz so that nobody would know what was going on. You know, and he got it patented and everything like that. And then he went and presented it to them. And all, all of a sudden they could just drop these things in the box, close it. And it, it, it quadrupled the speed and cut the time and, and the actual shipping cost down substantially. And for the, 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 the initial time that he hung on to it, it netted him $15,000 a month for two days' work that he had to do to put it together. And then a Japanese company wanted to buy it and bought it out for an unbelievable sum of money. 
uh, Glenn had the Midas touch. He ended up with five businesses running through Chapman Enterprises. Everything he touched just kind of turned to gold. He had his house built. Uh, it was a a, a uh, duplicate or, or uh, of the Georgia Capitol mansion, and with the exception of instead of a carriage house, it had a garage, and it had a five-car garage, and he had Maserati. He had a Ford Pantera. His wife liked her Cadillac. You know, and then he had, and he had his old little Toyota pickup that was what he drove all the time. You know, for whatever reason, it was just he was attached to it. And, uh, but he didn't get a space in the garage. And everything Glenn kept doing, and, and it just kept multiplying, and he started getting bigger and bigger contracts. Part of his companies was called Terra Construction, Terra. Again, the mansion of Georgia, and and, and uh, you know he just uh, couldn't couldn't go wrong. I can remember sitting at his house in in in, in the in the jacuzzi just off the pool because uh, I did work work for him. I did marketing for him, and uh, we'd be talking and uh, getting things squared away. And 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 uh, he liked to conduct business. You know, and he was business was twenty four hours a day. You know. In a sense, he was his brain was always thinking about stuff, and uh, of course, I was always trying to share the Lord with him. And then, uh, you know, uh, I ended up going to Bible college, and and uh, you know, he says, "Bob, I'll pay you twice as much as what I've been paying you." And he was paying me well, if you'll just stay. And I said, "No, I, this is where." I, and he said, "I guess I can't argue with God," you know. And, and and that was the best to give. But he couldn't understand somebody who wouldn't be willing to just, if, if just a little bit more money was offered, making a, a change and, and giving up something else. He couldn't see the difference and that type of thing. And, and, and all of this to say was that, oh, probably about two years after we'd gone to Bible college, he sent me a letter. He'd accepted the Lord. And, and everything was still going great guns. And then about a year later, he went bankrupt. Everything fell apart. And it was gone in a flash. Everything. He lost everything. Now, you, you look at that and you realize it can happen. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, life is short. Even the things we do, all the things we toil for, they're temporary at best. And the one thing that's for sure is you what? Can't take it with you. We always joke about no U-Haul trailers on the back of hearse. You know, it, it, you know and, and I'm, I know that there are people who have been buried in their, in their cars and, and, and a lot of different things, but, but, but that's as far as the car gets. They're going to dig it up, you know, and it's going to be rusted out. It's not going to be worth anything. Uh, you know, it's, it's, life is short. Life is elusive. It's hard to grab a hold of. And you don't have the control you think you have over what is going to happen. How many of us plan and think? You know, and, and, and you think, what, what's the most important? When I, when I moved in with my dad, what was the most important thing to him for me to happen for me? Well, I'll tell you, when I came home, 
he dropped me off at the, the school to get my, my classes. And he, and he just left me there, and, 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 and I walked home from the high school. And uh, he came home that night, and he says, well, let me see your classes. And he looked at my classes. I won't use the language he used. And he wasn't prone to using bad language, but he was just blown away. He says, how blankety blank 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 do you plan to get into college with these classes? I had shop one, two, and three, and, and remedial English and remedial math. And, and I says, well, uh, college? <laughs> Is that one L or two? Uh, you know, I, 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 I had never thought about college. But for my dad, no matter what else is important, getting to college was what was important. didn't matter what you used it for. didn't matter what you were doing with it. And the irony was that I was already in a, a, a mentor program, an apprentice program, uh, that was going to provide a trade and a, and, a, and, a, and a livelihood for me. And I was very happy with it. But college? Okay. You know, whatever we have to do. So he takes me back to the, the, the supervisor, my counselor, and, and uh, the counselor says, well, Mr. Hapgood, uh, you can't put Bob in those classes because his previous, he doesn't have the prerequisite classes and his grade point average for his freshman year is 1.4. So we can't put him in those college prep classes. Well, my dad was a big enough fish in the little town that he got me in on probation and I was smart enough to realize that this was, you know, I better do well. And, and so we managed to get through it all. But, you know, for my dad, education was everything. Everything. And getting a degree. The irony was my dad got a teaching credential. I got a teaching credential. I'm a fourth generation teacher. He was a third generation teacher. My dad taught for four weeks and hated it. I taught high school and public school, and I hated the politics in the, in the school system. I went into industrial sales. My dad went into broadcasting. And I'm not going to say I wasted my education by any stretch. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, you know, you get into something, and all of a sudden you realize it's not what you want to do. How many people have, 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 are outside of their majors in college in places today and in some cases not using their, their college education at all? Others are perfectly happy with being biochemists, you know. Uh, you know but, but the idea is, is you don't, things change. You make all these great plans. And that's what, what Solomon's getting at. Everything's in flux. It's hard to grab a hold of. He gets kind of modeling here where he says, there's no remembrance of former things. And the word there in verse 11 is, is literally things. You might have another footnote that tells you people. Not just things, people. Okay, there is no remembrance of former people, nor there will be any remembrance of later, later people, yet to be among those who come after. In other words, after we're gone, one or two generations, who even knew we were here? My grandfather, second generation teacher, went to Lompoc, California at age 19 after he graduated from Berkeley with his master's degree in mathematics and he had a teaching credential. They wanted him to go on into all sorts of stuff. And he says, no, and this is the one thing I know that I didn't understand until I became a Christian. He says, God just wants me there. They don't have a, they don't have a teacher. They've never had a teacher. You know, they've always had people that are trying to do it, but he said they need a teacher. 
And that's where I'm supposed to go. And he, so he was the first credentialed full-time teacher in Lompoc, California. His first paycheck was chickens and different things. He rode a horse to school. It was in the 1890s. He had students that were older than he was. And back then, that wasn't an embarrassment. You know, you could only go to school. Some people could only go to school one quarter a year. You know, uh, and you and they were still in these uh, seventh and eighth grade because you didn't get moved ahead until you'd mastered that level. And uh, you know, he he lived there until he was 94. That's where he died. He was the only full-time school teacher for years. He taught in a one-room schoolhouse and then became the, the, the head teacher in a multiple-staffed schoolhouse. And he became the superintendent of schools. And there's a half-good school and there, all this stuff in Lompoc, California. And, he, and, and, and when he died, I was blown away. The number of people whose lives had been touched by him. They had to move his funeral to the high school uh, uh, gymnasium because there were so many people. Some people that had flown in from out of the state and a couple of them had flown in from out of the country to honor him. Most of their kids don't know who he is and none of their grandkids, I'm sure, know who Arthur Richard Hapgood is. A couple of generations is all it takes to be Forgotten. Again, this is what Solomon's talking about. Now, we, we know who Solomon is because of God's Word. You know, but, but it's, it, it's just this whole picture of, of, of what's the point is what he's kind of driving for here. What is certain? What, is the, what, what for sure is certain? Taxes. Well, there's actually some states that don't do taxes, so I don't I have to, to think about that. But we do know one thing is absolutely certain: death. So, the picture here is is start at the end. Again, what's the name of the book? Living life backwards. There's one, one thing we can bank on with absolute surety. We are going to die. I thought, man, this is morbid. You know, I don't want to talk about this. And then I realized, no, you don't want to listen to it either. As a people and as a culture, we do everything we can to avoid talking about it, dealing with it, and... and, and, and when, you know, it's something that we just don't want to... to, to think about. And we do everything we can to what? Put it off. It hit home for me yesterday doing Teresa's memorial. She's one of my kids. She wasn't old enough to be in the youth group when when I started the when I came up here and became a, the youth pastor at the church that she was going to. Her older sister was in the youth group. Uh, some of you know uh, Kathy uh, and, and Scott Rexford. Uh, but uh, anyway, they... they uh, uh, so, Teresa, I called her T, became a tag-along. 
And she ended up getting to go to just about everything the youth ever did. And uh, we became, you know, we've been friends, and, and I've been in and out of her life ever since. Poor girl has been in, was in and out of, of addiction problems. Uh, her drug of choice was alcohol. She was a diabetic from, from childhood. Anybody that understands diabetic and carbohydrates and, and sugar from alcohol know that the two do not go together. She could never figure that out. She legitimately couldn't figure out the carbohydrates and complex carbohydrates and all the things that she could and couldn't eat. She could never get it right. And so she was in and out of the hospital, in and out of rehab, all these different things. I want to let you know something, by the way. Just because you struggle with addiction doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. I've had people in the last couple of weeks wonder, was she saved? I know that I know that I know because I talked to her about it. And I know that she had a personal relationship with Christ. But she couldn't get her life right. She couldn't get a hold of it. That's really what this is talking about. And by the way, just a quick thing on addiction. I have a really broad definition for addiction. Brad, you know, you actually know the definition. Addiction is anything that brings short-term gratification and long-term harm or destruction. Food, shopping, work, drinking, drugs, eating, gossip. I mean, we can just go on down the line. Addictions have all shapes and forms and sizes. And if addiction keeps you out of heaven, then a lot of people who are in church are not going to make it. So, just give you my two cents worth. And uh, maybe a quarter today. Um, but this, this idea is that we need to start uh, looking at this thing from the back to the front. And so, what, what, what the uh, author here is, is uh, what David's writing here is, he says, prepare to die. <laughs> well, once you can start thinking about it, huh? The preacher has answered his own question by pointing to the uh, cyclical comings and goings of the world. His answer is that people do not gain from their labor and toil because ultimately they are going to die and be forgotten. Again, it's a depressing thing. I'm thinking here, you know, why did we pick this book and why did we pick this book to, to, to preach? Prepare to die. It made me think of Peggy Lee's song. How many of you know it? Is that all there is? It takes an older person to... You kids, you kids wouldn't have a clue. You know? Uh, I, you know, it, 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 just the, the first verse. I remember when I was a very little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out to the pavement. I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to fire? Dad took me to a circus and she goes on through it and she at the end she says, is that all there is to a circus? When I fell in love, head over heels. And then obviously it doesn't work out. Is that all there is to love? 
And she says, I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, doesn't, why doesn't she just end it all? Unusual phrase for a song in the 50s. I'll tell you what. Uh, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm not in any hurry for that final disappointment. Even when it's depressing, we still put it off. For I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my first, uh, my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? In a sense, that's what Solomon is saying. Is that all there is? We were born, we live, and then we die. And all the stuff that we accumulate, all the stuff we toil for, all the family, all, the, all that stuff we put together and strive for and, and work for and the education we got and all that kind of stuff is moot because we're dead. So, we have that picture. We start with, you know, uh, we prepare to die. And then after we prepare to die, he says, the, the author says, we can then begin to learn to live. Because we'll understand, this is the end result. You'll, he actually comes to a point where you'll begin to see how you will actually value things in a different way. Things will have a different importance to you, possibly. The conclusion that he, he came up with this, with this part of the, the picture was, when you think that at last you've made a decisive change in your circumstances, you will soon want to change something else. Whatever it is you think you've gained, it will soon vanish from the earth like morning mist, and you along with it too. Part of learning to live is simply accepting this. One day you will be dead and gone, and the world will go on probably without even remembering you. A hundred years after your death, the chances are no one will ever know you lived. If this depresses you, then keep reading. There's still a lot to learn. But if it cracks a, 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 a wry smile on your face, you're halfway to happiness. For the preacher is going to show us what we should and should not expect out of life. He's not just saying there's no gain after, we're cha uh, after we've chased the wind. We will insist there's no need for the chase in the first place. There's no gain to be had under the sun, and that's precisely the point. None need to be sought. We're chasing the wrong things. And Solomon may be a lot more clever here than we realize. And I want to suggest something to you. Ecclesiastes is every much a part of the Bible as the Gospels. God wanted us to have this book. And Paul tells Timothy that every part of the, of the Bible, every word is profitable. So as we go through this, I believe we're going to come up with some things that we're going to see that apply to our life. It's not the way I would have approached things. I'm, I'm, I'm the happy-go-lucky guy. You know, I'm not the guy that wants to... I, I don't particularly... I'm not, I'm not at this point afraid of death. Well, I better be careful how I say that. I'm afraid of certain kinds of death. You know, I don't want to be eaten by a lion. 
And somebody says, what are the chances of that? Hey, I've heard about people walking through zoos that are dead, you know, so I, you know, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. Um, I know I don't want to die in a fire because I almost did. And I don't want to ever experience that again. So, you know, but I, the aftermath, and this is where it's all coming down to, isn't it? The reason we live and the reason we're here is to understand why does God allow it to be this way? And how do we get to see God in the midst of it and to come into a more strong, powerful relationship with the Lord as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes? And I think you'll see it as we go along. So, again, the book is Living Life uh, Backward. If you want to get a copy of it, Amazon certainly has it. Christian Book Distributors has it. And you could probably, if you have another source of of books, it's popular enough uh, that you could probably find it there too. Um, My thoughts as I go through this, uh, you know, I was looking at this and saying, wait a minute, one thing he hasn't talked about is we're created in God's image. You realize that? We're the only creature in the universe that's created in God's image. And it says that we are created in His image. He says, let us, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26-27, let us create man in our image. And so it says, and we created man, male and female, in, in our image. We're a unique creation. For God's purpose. He has a unique purpose for it. It says to be in dominion over the earth. What interfered with this was sin. And as a result, we live in a sinful world. And it's a fallen world. And every one of us, we've talked about this over the last weeks, every one of us live in fallen flesh. And every one of us have a battle, according to Romans chapter 7, that's going on between the Spirit and and what you want to do to serve God and, and what the flesh wants. And, and the flesh wins a lot. But we're created in God's image. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, He put eternity in our hearts. Interesting thought. God put eternity in our hearts. So as we look at all this stuff that runs back and forth and goes all around and stuff like that, eternity is beyond that. Because God makes it real clear that all of that has a beginning and an end. All of it does. That what we've talked about. Including finite man and his fallen flesh has a beginning and an end. But those who rest in the Lord have eternity. And so what came to my mind was Philippians 1.26 and it was scriptures I actually shared yesterday at the memorial service. But Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is He's throwing out a statement that says the worst thing the devil can do is take my my mortal life and I win. Starts to change the way you look at things. I'm I'm confused at at times because I see these drug lords with their penthouses and big houses and, and their cars and their money and all this kind of stuff and some of them getting away with it over and over and over again. They've bought the, the, the government. They've bought the police and they can just live free and easy and do whatever it is they want to do. And, and, and I'm thinking, and, and I see devout Christian people in the hospital dying from cancer or something like that. I'm saying it's just not right. you know. And the bottom line is, is that I'm measuring things in the wrong capacity. 
to live as Christ. No matter where you are as a Christian, you serve Christ. And I, I learned that from a woman who was a missionary who had battled cancer for over 30 years. And the last year of her life, she battled it most of the time in the hospital. And I, and I had made that statement. It's just not fair. And she says, Bob, you don't understand. God has put me here. I couldn't get a hold of that at first. And she says, I've got a captive audience. Every orderly, every nurse, every doctor that walks through that door has to listen to me because they, they're going to be polite to this old lady. I don't know how many Bibles she gave away. On the last day of her life, she gave away her Bible. I happen to know that the person that received that Bible accepted the Lord because she, she got baptized in the church that I was going to. And she shared the testimony. All because Marilyn was in the hospital with cancer. That girl has eternity. She's really got a hold of life now. And the reason why I say it that way is because First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, chapter five, talks about our bodies are tense; they're temporary. He says in the in the middle of that, I think it's verse four. What is mortal is swallowed up by life. My when I die, my mortal tent is swallowed up by what is life. I thought I knew life here. But Paul says, you don't have a clue. Wait until you're on this side of it. You win, you gain, it's better. That's what Jesus said too. That's what the Gospels are all about. Jesus came so that we could know this. And so we have communion to share for that reason. To know that we know that we know that what God has done, He did, and He did it once and for all. It's a finished work. He said so from the cross. It is finished. And His resurrection on the third day is the proof that He had the authority to do it. And as a result, you can think about this world and all the things in it and all the stuff of it, but what we have is that thought. What is mortal is swallowed up by life because of what Jesus Christ did for us and what we share at Communion. Ask the ushers to come pass out the communion. Hold it until we've all been served and we'll share together.